Hey, welcome to Fathering Our Future, the podcast for dads. I'm Anthony Vandegrift, and I'm not the perfect dad, but every day I am trying to be better. Thank you for being with me. I've got a very special guest with me today. I am delighted to have the good Dr. James Little. Thank you for being with me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking. Uh huh. Um, he has spent much of his academic career studying the family setup, uh, the roles of mothers and fathers, relations with children. So he's kind of done it all, and he did his he did his dissertation on the role of religiousness and spirituality in the family. So, as an expert on the topic, I thought, what a great individual to bring on and talk to you. Uh, to give you some insight, to give you some knowledge, because this is the month of June, and I know some people herald this as uh, a different focus for the month of June, but I want to focus on dads because Father's Day is in the month of June. So my plan is to bring on leaders, knowledgeable, educated individuals, great men and great dads who can help each of us. And Dr. James Littles is the first one. And I just have to say, I will, I'll give him the opportunity to talk about his academic achievements. But he has a, um, a true spirit of humility and a servant's heart. While he was teaching at seminary, I was studying on my own accord. And there were about three occasions where I had some questions that I couldn't get help from anybody else. And I would send him some emails and... He was a professor. He had his own students. He could have said, ask somebody else, but he always responded, and he always gave me something to meditate on. And there was even one occasion where he mentioned that he would bring me something, and he did. He came weeks later, and he brought me, he'd taken a copy of, um, it was like a dictionary of the Old Testament in the Pentateuch. He took a section out of it and gave it to me, and I still have it. I still reference that from time to time. So, He's a great individual, and while he is, you know, covered in academic accolades, I love how he always introduces himself to the church. He always says, my name's Jim, and I'm a worshiper. So he is a very humble individual, a very serving individual, and he's a dad, and that's why and he's grandpa, here. Yes. And, and I wasn't <laughs> going to include that, but yes, he's a dad, and he's a grandpa, and uh, he's going to be a uh, a tremendous help to each of us today. So before we dive off into things, uh, you can just, you can mesmerize us with some of your academic achievements. Uh, that's kind of boring. So. <laughs> <laughs> now I have uh, three graduate degrees. One's in education. Uh, the other is a master's in divinity. And the third is the PhD in family studies uh, from University of Delaware. I pursued the degree so I could teach pastoral care kinds of things at the seminary level. So while I was finishing the deg degree, including the dissertation, which hard to believe is now 20 years ago yeah. uh, that that happened, I was uh, a part of the founding faculty administration of Urshan Graduate School of Theology. So uh, uh, that was the stuff that was happening at the time yeah. for me. Yeah. And um, I, I asked him when I talked to him about this, how he did it. <laughs> and I mean, it basically boiled down to when God calls you to do something, you do it. And I think that's a core piece that I like to convey today in terms of our fathering uh, or husbanding or whatever the roles might be, is we are all good enough to do what God has called us to do. Oftentimes, because of the world and the media around us, we look at places where we fail and places mm -hmm. where we can't measure up. and thinking that we need 17 experts to learn how to tie our shoes. Uh, the physics in tying your shoes are quite complex. So if you analyzed shoe tying, we would all get Velcro shoes <laughs> uh, because we'd be disabled by the analysis that happens as we're tying our shoes. Sure. If we analyze fathering, parenting, uh, being a husband, if we look at it through that lens all the time, we will uh, wind up placing ourselves in one of two categories. One of boasting, I alone can do it, and if everybody would be like me, the world would be a perfect place. Or we would just throw up our hands in despair and saying, well, I can't do it, particularly in a world that's uh, shifting and changing. However, uh, if God has placed a child in your life, then you are called to parent that child. Yeah. And and I have to add the caveat, you need a community around you, in my opinion, sure. to do so. Uh, fathering is not a solo task. 
uh, helps if there's a mom around, yep. uh, but also helps if there's a faith community around uh, to help in multiple levels, and perhaps we'll get into that later. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so much good stuff there. Uh, I spoke recently on, you know, you're you're always enough as a dad for your for your kids, um, and that's so true. And part of the mission that I have for Father in Our Future, it, it, I break it down like this: I, I want to help men love being dads. I want to help dads strive to be better dads every day, and I want to build a community of dads so that together we can better father our future. Uh, the community aspect is so vital. Um, but like I said, you did your dissertation on the role of religiousness and spirituality within the family. Um, I know it was 20 years ago, mm-hmm. but I, I know you're sharp. I know you remember. What, what, was, your, what was your hypothesis going into that? What, what, were, you, what were you hoping to find? Sure. There were some major changes happening at the end of the 20th century in terms of research related to family. One of those was actually fathering. Uh, Prior to that period, fathering was not considered a topic of study. So uh, a a professor named Lamb and then one of my professors, Palkovitz, were some of the first ones who started to explore the role of fathering. Before that, it was almost politically incorrect to examine fathering. Uh, because the role of women had been depressed so long and then looking at women's issues. And I don't say that in a pejorative way because there was much value added in that study of women's work. But it was almost considered, and uh, for theologically conservative people, uh, dads historically, their job, a good dad was someone who brought home a paycheck, didn't drink it up at the bar on the way home, mm-hmm. uh, didn't ab- abuse their spouse. Uh, being present really wasn't an expectation. So given that construction of fathering, we shouldn't be surprised that our culture at large thought that if we wanted to examine what children needed, we would need to examine their mothers. And of course, we don't want to put mothers out of the equation. But beginning of the 21st century, close of the 20th, beginning of the 21st century, begin to study uh, fathering as well. So although my dissertation is on parenting practices, I wanted to explore the way in which uh, theologically conservative parents uh, were not fitting in the mold of the classical uh, literature on parenting, which had three typologies. One was an authoritarian parent, dictator, Mm -hmm. abusive, heavy control. On the other end of the spectrum would be permissive parenting. Uh, let children do uh, what they want to do. Let them discover life on their own. They'll make a ton of mistakes, and eventually they'll learn from that. Well, that eventually was split into two types of permissiveness. One was out of love, and one was out of just abandonment and leaving children on their own. And then there was this authoritative parenting uh, where it would guide others. Literature is beginning to happen in the beginning of the 21st century. The point of that was that theologically conservative parents could both have a high uh, call on uh, right behavior practices and even having discipline and expressive parenting, uh, love and care. So I wanted to explore if that held true for my own theological uh, tradition that is of a United Pentecostal Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, this literature had started probably with more of a Southern Baptist, other theologically conservative. No one had studied our denomination, so I was wanting to explore that. Another strand of this is beginning in the mid-20th century, spirituality started uh, diverging from religiousness. So the older literature, religion and spirituality were considered synonymous. Right. Now, uh, due to a variety of factors, it's recognized or thought of or constructed to be that religiousness is practices, spirituality is that connection to God. So uh, I think that was a uh, tragic uh, departure point because now as uh, I found people would engage in what we consider religious practices such as going to church or uh, uh, serving others. And they would separate that from spirituality. So you had these two things that I need to go to church, but that doesn't make me a good dad. I need to also be spiritual. That is, I have to make sure while I'm attending church, I'm connecting to God in the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to tease that out a little bit in the okay. dissertation as well. Yeah, that sounds like a separation between faith and works. So easily, yeah. And also as part of the anti-institutional stuff that yeah. happens in America. 
and the ever individualizing of the world. So it's it's about Jesus and me, and the Bible is God's love letter to me, mm-hmm. and I am going to heaven, and Jesus is coming back for me. So you have a little bit of that happening. I too. see. Yeah. So you completely do away with the huge communal right. emphasis in the scripture. Wow. Okay. So when you actually did your study, which in your dissertation, you noted that you you interviewed and surveyed 20 different families right. that were from traditionally conservative uh, backgrounds religiously. So what did you find maybe that you weren't expecting? Yeah, the, uh, the study was more of a, a discovery process, a descriptive process, and I used social construction theory. I wanted to see the ways in which men and women would uh, draw from resources, call them interpretive resources, draw from uh, what pastors were saying, what the literature was saying, what culture was saying, their families of origin, how they would weave these various resources together and construct their own experiences. This is drawing from an understanding that uh, even things such as gender is ongoing construction. Now, in our world today, of course, that's a uh, a challenging topic to explore because our society is saying that there is no biological element to gender. Uh, personally, as a uh, theologically conservative person, for me, I believe that there is a part of God's creative peace. Having a womb changes you, sure. whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And our world today is wanting to do away with the biological element of gender and just speak to the social construction of gender. Hmm. and uh, But I want to bring some of the balance back to that, although I do believe there's a, a biological element, male and female together imaging God. I also believe that there's a social construction element to it that as men and women kind of navigate what it means to be uh, a man and a woman, uh, to be a father and to be a mother, and how to do that, uh, as their children are going through various stages. So I was wanting to see how they develop that at the micro level. I uh, so I was interviewing uh, husbands and wives together, which is not usually done in research. Usually mm-hmm. you would interview people separately. But I actually wanted to see the conversations that would happen in the middle sure. uh, as a test case, if you would, in what way. So, for instance, the dissertation tells one story of a husband and wife who were quite, quite traditional Dad's the head of the house, tells the wife what to do, uh, those kinds of things. And she says, yes, that's the case. The phone rings. Uh, Dad says, turn off the phone. And she answers the phone anyway, and holds a short conversation, then hangs up. They both agreed that he was the head of the house. He said what happened. But then in the, in the events that were taking place, I could see, well, you're saying one thing because you feel like that's what you have to say. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, what happens day to day doesn't exactly match up. And in their mind, there's no conflict with this. Uh, So it's not just that I could uh, send out a series of surveys and get responses. I needed to watch behaviors in the process. Yeah, that's very interesting that um, I would think that with them being together, that you would have some reservation. Um, Certainly the isolation factor I can say what I want because she's not around or, you know, vice versa. Um, So in your research, specifically with fathers, what do you feel – let's start first with within what you did your research on for your dissertation, the theologically conservative dads. Where where do you think we miss it as church-going, faith-bearing fathers? I think a major departure point is what we see as our core identity. Okay. Uh, So as a professor of practical theology at the seminary and having taught in Bible school and the seminary together for nearly 30 years, I've come to land on the most important thing I can teach is that everyone's core identity is a disciple. That helps decrease what the sociologists call role conflict. Okay. Uh, most fathers are going to be working on jobs. Uh, if they have children, uh, the age group that I studied, they had to have at least one child between the ages of five and 11. Okay. So these parents also had parents 
so you can have a conflict between your children and your parents, particularly if your parents are aging, conflict between being a husband and being a dad, how those roles may conflict, uh, professional field. So for instance, if someone is uh, an attorney or a physician, uh, the demands of those jobs being oh, 60, 70, 80 hour a week jobs, uh, just like one couple that I interviewed owned a lumberyard. So between Ooh. the two of them, they worked about 115, 120 hours a week. Wow. Uh, but I found out it was quite fascinating. Numbers of hours did not translate into what people thought about time and what they thought about work. There were other variables that came into play. This is why qualitative research really helps. Instead of having people bubble in, do I work X number of hours? Sure. And then saying people who work this many hours have these challenges as dads. People who work these hours have other challenges or they're free to be a dad. That's not the case at all. It's okay. how we think about our work and how we think about our role as dads. So for me, the departure point has to be as a disciple. And if as a dad, even the word discipline, I jokingly told people when I would teach parenting courses at the college or uh, family studies courses, the root uh, word of discipline is not whip, whoop, have or has whooping. <laughs> it's not conjugated as, as uh, controlling behavior. The word discipline means forming a disciple. So discipline is more about getting the right behaviors than it is stopping the wrong behaviors. Right. So if as a dad, I'm seeing my children's behaviors as reflective of who I am as a person, I, if I'm not careful, I can get into the, I've got to control their behavior because it will look bad on me. Right. Uh, and even now, my kids are all uh, in their 30s, and I have one that just turned 40 last year. If I'm not careful, I still evaluate my effectiveness as a dad now that it's uh, in history. I I can measure that based on what my kids are doing. Hmm. And that's the case whether you're three, uh, two, your kids are two or three. Yep. Uh, so, for instance, so my son, who's the youngest, uh, one day in the restaurant, uh, which in those days was a rare event, uh, but as uh, I was looking on the floor and it looked like a nuclear war zone <laughs> happened, I'm saying, I'm not going to the restaurant again with my children until they are uh, civilized. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is just not because I'm interpreting the amount of stuff on the floor to be indicative of my ability as a dad mm. to care for these children. If I can, if I can, uh, Take that out of the equation. See, my primary identity is a disciple, a follower of Christ. As I'm caring for my spouse, her name is Sherry. As I care for Sherry, I'm a disciple who's caring for a disciple. If I'm caring for uh, Andrew the Third, we called uh, James the Third. We called him Andrew. Uh, I'm caring for a person who I want to form as a disciple. Jennifer, our daughter, the oldest, who just turned forty last year. Uh, she's not listening to this, so hopefully. No one knows her uh, age. No one knows her age. Yes. 21. Uh, she, <laughs> she's a young 40. We'll yeah. just put it there. Yeah. Uh, recognizing that caring for Jennifer is about caring for a disciple. And I'm not wanting to make her in my image. As my firstborn, we had a bit of that challenge. Wow. Uh, whenever she would say she would want to be a nurse, I would say, well, why don't you want to be the doctor? Because I'm also... You know, a, a graduate of universities, and I don't want my daughters to be tracked simply because, well, girls can't be mathematicians or girls can't be physicians. They, they're always going to be in the helping role. So I, that was a learning process I had. Mm. Uh, my oldest daughter is the only child I have that didn't go to university. So for her, I had to learn as she was 17, 18, 19, that for her to be a, a good disciple, of Christ, not of Jim and Sherry, but a good disciple of Christ is what is the giftings that she has and what does she need to live as a disciple? Wow. So I had to come to the place where I had to repent of trying to mold her and shape her in my image because the master had equipped uh, Jennifer to be a disciple of his in his image. Yeah. So she is a stay-at-home mom uh, uh, and she uh, homeschooled her two boys or her oldest will be a senior uh, this coming year. Her trajectory and path is different 
uh, from my other children. And that's okay because she's not reflecting on me. Wow, she doesn't have a college degree. Uh, you have three graduate degrees. Where did you fail? That's not a fail. Yeah. I have these degrees because that's what I needed to do, what I felt like God was calling me to do. Right. Uh, Jennifer, actually, to go to university may have detracted her. Not the university would be bad, but if she was pursuing an identity through a degree, that would have been a fail. Yeah. Just like you have heard me say frequently, don't call me doctor, call me Jim. Yeah. My identity isn't doctor. My identity is a brother in Christ, and I work much harder at that than being a doctor. Yeah, wow. That's... um. What you said about, because I know, I mean, I have three little ones, and I feel like it is, I've talked about this before with other people, but I feel like it's very difficult for fathers when they have sons with the whole trying to raise them up in your own personal image, because you can kind of see yourself in them, and, you know, they share your biology and everything. Um but the reminder that we are raising them to be in his image and not ours that is um that's a key perspective that we always have to keep in and mind and i think it's even more important as the cycles of change get shorter and shorter and shorter uh so when i'm teaching young people 17 to 25 i'm telling them should the lord tarry i'm equipping them to be leaders in 2050 and 2060 Ooh. And just saying that kind of freaks me out, thinking of, <laughs> of giving the way the world is changing, what's the world going to look like in 2060? Sure. If I'm not careful, I can move into some freak-out mode of, oh, no, I've got to help them guard against. I don't believe forming our children or teaching adults of how to live into 2060 is a defensive task. The church is called to be light and salt, which are Offensive, sure. not offending, but on the offense. So instead of seeing these rapid changes as something we have to guard against, as if we can go back to some golden age of the church. For me, the golden age of the church is in front of us, not behind sure. us. So uh, if I can teach our children to be disciples of Christ, they're going to be able to handle whatever's in front of them. Right. Our culture has said, I need to give my kids a better chance, a better life than I did. That's going to come to failure, particularly in a uh, uh, in a world where uh, a global world uh, where no longer have a nation which is on top of the heap, mm-hmm. but now uh, uh, technology is globalized and sure. job forces are globalized. And as we're doing this recording, gas is here in Texas three dollars and sixty five cents. Uh, we all may be walking fairly soon. You know, <laughs> in a world of change, if we are not careful, we get frightened by the change. Instead of, as men and women of faith, we should say, God is equipping me, and if we have children, he's equipping our children to walk boldly and faithfully in the days to come. This is why discipleship is about forming for God's purposes tomorrow. It's not about controlling behavior. Yeah. So the disciples, the, the discipleship identity uh, is a big place where we miss it as dads. I believe so. Um, and, that, and that clearly changes everything because, again, it's a perspective thing. It's like what you spoke about uh, leading into that with, with the qualitative research. It's not necessarily, oh, you know, if you feel in this bubble and you're working this much, then this is the result. No, it's all about the perspective and how you view and how you think of it. So the identity factor of before I'm a dad, I'm first a disciple, right. and this is this is my role, this is my call, and then that bleeds into everything else that you do, which I don't, I'm not telling you anything, obviously, but it is the biblical model of, of what the calling is. The calling is more so based on the identity and not the individual task. Right. For example, you're called to be rather than called to do. Right. So that's why it has the ability to bleed into everything that you do. That's why everything that your hands find to do, you can do it as right. unto the Lord right. because you are called to be a disciple to Him. Um, very, very, very neat insight on on the role of fatherhood being under the umbrella of the identity of a disciple. Is there anything else? 
outside of that, I understand that's a pretty broad uh, issue, but was there anything outside of the identity crisis that you feel dads missed it on? Uh, as with most areas of life, unrealized expectations uh, is what's going to bring yeah. a crasher sure. every single time. Yes. So if we can place our expectations back under the discipleship rubric, uh, uh, most men, by the time their kids are reaching their teen years, have either gotten to the place in their career where they're going to get to the level where they had aspired to, or they know by then it's not going to happen. Mm. In most of our careers, by the time you hit the quote-unquote midlife crisis, you know whether you've got it or not. Sure. Those unrealized expectations will choke your ability to see the beauty in each of our children. Yeah. Statistically, those listening today, uh, let's say... 5%, 10% are going to have children who have autism on the autism spectrum. Wow. And that number is increasing. It may right. even be more than that, maybe right. 15%. More. Wow. The numbers are increasing. And, and there's lots of hypotheses of why that's the case. Uh, since we're not in control of all those things, what we are in control of is how do I view my autistic child? Mm -hmm. If I look at that autistic child of falling short of everybody else's norms, or if I look at that child as evidently, I've not done what's right for God or God would not have placed this crisis in my home. Mm -hmm. Or my faith isn't strong enough or my prayer life isn't good enough or I failed someplace by giving a shot or not giving a shot. Yep. Uh, or uh, why hasn't God healed this child? If those expectations are there that my children are all going to be from like woebegone, <laughs> above average... <laughs> I'm going to fail as a dad. But if I can look at this precious child that's in my hand yeah. and say, Lord, what future do you have for this child? And I'm humbled by the opportunity to care for this child into that future and let those expectations slide away. Mm -hmm. And in its place, the sole expectation is if this child loves God. We'll, we'll talk about things related to mate selection. We'll talk about you know, university or trade school. We'll talk about career. We'll talk about all those things, but we're going to put them in the context of my one expectation is I want to bring glory to God with my life. Mm -hmm. wow. And as a uh, now a person moving into geezerhood, uh, I have to revisit this in my own life. So whether you're a dad or a grandpa, you have to keep asking that question, am I going to still be satisfied with bringing God glory? Or am I going to be dissatisfied with that goal? Did I leave a mark? Have I done something valuable? Uh, have I satisfactorily contributed to my discipline? Or whatever those goals are, if we're not careful, that will detract us away from our core identity as a disciple. So even at 60 now, I have to remember again, I've been walking to bring God glory. I did this when I was 11. Mm-hmm. I did it when I was 18. I did it when I was 25. I did it when I was 45. Now in my 60s, uh, I have to say I'm still absolutely enthralled with the possibility that my life can bring God glory. Wow. And if we can keep that every single step of the way, it doesn't matter what storms come. Whether the stock market falls a 1,000 points today like it did last week <laughs> or it goes up. It doesn't matter yeah. because the world in which I am in right now, I have the wonderful potential to bring God glory. Yep. That is not just what I do at church. Uh, one of the things that we miss as dads is that all of our life is worship. Yeah. When I go to work, that's an act of worship. Right. When I change the kid's diaper, that's an act of worship, a stinky worship act. It is. It's a stinky worship act, particularly those bad bombs. It's a stinky <laughs> worship act. But the uh, the potential of caring for one of God's kids, mm. I do it not because it feels good. And that's the problem. This is where you and I as men and women of faith are going to diverge from our world. 
from our world, I'm going to do this as long as it feels good, as long as it's good for me. And if the time comes where mom and I have to split because we've gone different ways, we'll do so because I have to be true to me. Mm. Uh, people quote Shakespeare, to thine own self be true, as if that's a wise statement. Shakespeare wisely put that in the mouth of an idiot. Only a fool would say, I have to be true to myself. Wow. Context is key. (laughs) Context is key. To thine own self be true if you're a moron. Yeah. (laughs) Because you don't know the tomorrows. Sure. And part of our act of repentance of men of faith is saying, is repenting of pride that says, I can control all variables. Hmm. You might have known that before you were a dad. But once you became a dad, you put away that myth of being in control of that that or you abuse people. Wow. Because abuse is an act of power, whether it's sexual abuse, psychological abuse, whatever physical abuse, whatever form of abuse, is an effort to control. Hmm. Since I'm not controlling other areas, I'm going to control here, and I'm going to be in control in my home. I see. So an act of worship is a repentance on men's part of control and anger. I belong to a theological tradition that holds strongly to uh, ways of holiness, for instance, which can be uh, parsed out in many different ways. But for men, particularly dads, I think perhaps the most critical holiness issue is anger. Yeah. Because anger conveys a reality that I am dissatisfied with the life that I have dissatisfied with my ability to control the tomorrows and the trajectory of my days. And my only way to do that is lash out Mm -hmm. in anger because I'm out of control. That is unholy. But my act of worship as a disciple says, Lord, you alone are in control and I call you Lord and I am your servant. So whether I'm going to work, Jesus says this through Paul's writings, when you go to work, you're not serving your boss you're serving the Lord. Right. When I'm caring for my children and my grandchildren, I am not serving them. I am serving the Lord. And so I think dads uh, step off track with unrealized expectations and efforts to control. Wow. The, that's, that's incredible insight. The, the anger, um, the anger issue, making that plain as, you know, what, what it stems from, yep. this lack of control, and I think that's very—it's very easy. I, I, I have a pretty mild temperament. I've never lashed out or done anything of that nature. I know it is a very difficult thing for a lot of men, but the fact that it stems from things aren't going the way that I want them to go again goes back to perspective and the way that you think of things. Um, this is kind of our central theme. Uh, there was something in your dissertation, and we can we can bring it around to this. There was one father who uh, made the statement that he didn't want to teach his kids to rely on man, including himself, because right. people can fail you. It was, I want them to rely on God. Uh, but the reality is, our kids look to us. Right. We're their role model. We're their example. So, and and this will dabble back into what has already been said. But what steps can we take as fathers to blend those two realities? Yes, we will fail as dads. That doesn't mean that we should give up. And yes, we want to get our kids to focus primarily on God. Again, not creating them in my image, mm-hmm. but in His. Right. But how do we be? How do we become that that avenue for our children to see and to go down that connects them to God? Right. Uh, first of all, I think the the uh, young the father that gave that response was giving a pious, a spiritually pious answer. I need to teach people to follow Jesus which is part of pietism coming out of the Lutheran German pietist movement in the 16 and 1700s, made its way through the Kentucky revival movement Mm. and then into uh, holiness and Pentecostal kinds of things in the early 20th century. So on the, on the surface, it sounds like the right answer. 
I've got to have the kids follow Jesus. While that is true, Paul also says, follow me as I follow Christ. Right. So this is where our identity as a disciple has to come in first uh, so that I am, I am growing and maturing as a disciple and modeling that for uh, my children. I can't cheat on my taxes and teach them, tell them to be truthful. You know, I have to, my behavior has right. to measure up with my values. Um, uh, the things which are uh, eternal, faith, hope, and love, those are the things that are going to guide our lives. So the, the task with our children is to recognize that they develop. So a young child, I may grab them strongly if they start walking into the street. Sure. I can't have a conversation. Well, you do understand that mass times the velocity before an accident equals mass times the velocity after an accident. And the car's mass is much larger than your mass. Right. So the car is not going to have much of a dent, but you will be grossly... I can't have a conversation <laughs> with a child. I have to grab their arm, pull them out, and for me, please don't criticize, but for me, I think even a swat on the rear end while doing so. Sure. Not abusive, but right. a tap on the rear end that says, don't do that. Right. Now... So we have those early stages where I may have to be more directive. When I start getting into the teen years, I need to understand a little bit about adolescent development, knowing that I want them to transition from a faith, this is what my dad believes. I want them to transition to this is to what I believe. Ooh. And to do that, they're going to have to experience a faith crisis in there. If I'm needing to control everything, and if my son or daughter goes and gets drunk when I, we've been a, a family of no alcohol whatsoever, if I'm not careful, I'll interpret that as I failed. As opposed to, the child is going through a crisis to this point. How do I help them navigate through whatever their questions might be? How do sure. I not freak out in that moment? So it looks like I'm taking a long way around to answer your question. No, but seeing that our children are going to develop and change over time. My parenting has to change over time. I, my, my son, when he was eight and he would do an eight-ish thing, I would say, would you quit acting eight? We had this script written and we knew our lines. Yeah. Would you quit acting eight? And his response was, but dad, I am eight. And I would thonk myself in the head <laughs> and say, oh, that's right. You're eight. That's why you're acting eight. I uh, had to get an understanding, and we had this script, so it would help him stop being so nutty at the moment, but mm -hmm. it would also remind me a little bit of nuttiness is expected in eight-year-olds. Sure. You know, that's that's right. the role of an eight-year-old. Right. So seeing that shift and change over time. So uh, Bowlby and Ainsworth were some of the first ones that talked about attachment theory in the late 60s, and it's still an important theory today that children attach to their caregivers, primarily their mothers, but to other caregivers as well. And I have to, as I'm a disciple, I know that they're attaching to me. Uh, their very identity is connected to me at those early stages. But if I'm growing as a disciple, I don't have to be afraid, as this dad does, that they're going to get too attached to me. They won't get attached to Jesus. Because I'm attached to Jesus. Yeah. I, I, I don't... I don't know how to breathe, except it's in my life as a disciple. Sure. I, I don't know any other way of being. Uh, now, I was raised in church planters' homes. Uh, I, I've been in this thing called the church my whole life. I didn't have a adolescent or a young adult period of running out and coming back. Mm -hmm. I, jokingly tell people I was 30 years old when I was born. I've always been quite serious, you know. Yeah. I skipped 12th grade because they were having too much fun and life's not about fun, so let's get busy here. Yep. But I had to learn to chill a little bit. Uh, if I'm attached to Christ and he is, my identity isn't in Christ, I can let the children be attached to me, but I'm not going to keep them attached to me. Mm -hmm. So it's knowing, how do I help them follow me? Uh, one of the things, I don't know how much time we have left, but one of the critical things dads can do is know what their own ministry is and find places where their children can join in that ministry. Yeah. So if dad's an usher at church and your church doesn't have a children's usher staff, go talk to pastor and say, you know, is it all right if George or Sally... Yeah 
joins me on the usher team. Because whatever your passion is for serving, bring your children into that passion where at all possible. Sure. Uh, I teach people they need to have a ministry in the church and they have to and they need ministries outside the church. They need mm-hmm. a place to serve internally, places to serve externally. Those external places of service take your children along wherever possible. Right. Particularly as they start getting 10, 11, 12 years old. Now they have a need to accomplish things. Right. They have a need. This is this is where crafts come in and uh, learning instruments come into play because now look at this success, Dad. I did that. I made this. Well, part of that uh, competency uh, of building a competent that I can take on new challenges and I can achieve this challenge. You want to take on the competency of I can do good things for other people. Yeah. And to build that in. Now you are there as a dad. Your identities in Christ as a dad. They're attached to you, but as you continue to serve Christ, eventually you're going to hand them off. Now, my dad as a uh, my dad didn't go to college. He was a church planter, planted four churches in upstate New York, and then the last 20 years of his ministry was back in Missouri, where he was from. Never went to college. People ask me as I was going to college and then seminary and then a PhD, isn't that going to judge? No, I was my dad's biggest fan, and he was my biggest fan. And I think it's because... I learned to follow Christ by following my dad. Mm -hmm. But dad knew his trajectory was not the end goal. Dad knew the trajectory for me was that I could follow Christ by walking with him. So it's okay to walk in the snow and have the little one try to stretch to step in your footprints. That's fun and it's cute. But you know that your footprints are following Christ. And in what ways along the path can we... Learn to help others, uh, including our own children, take those steps to follow Christ as they've been following us. Hmm. We'll wrap up and just kind of cycle back and hit some of the key points and the things that dads can do. I do need to mention, though, uh, what you said about once your kids hit adolescence and they're teenagers themselves, um, to where it is no longer about you trying to be in control and lead them in your ways, but now they have to have the opportunity to take on this identity for themselves. I think, one, I think this is probably something that I would have messed up on, having never heard it from anyone, but I think a lot of people mess up at this point because part of the expectation and the assumption that we make as dads is that I'm in control of them until they're out of the house. Um, but that, that's a, that's a beautiful revelation of, you have to, in a sense, take a step back while, while they're at least still in the umbrella of the home. And then you have this opportunity to help. Now you've trained them up. You can let them fall. You can pick them up and you can help them dust off and try again. Yeah, a Russian psychologist, uh, educational psychologist named Vygotsky uses a scaffold as an illustration for this. So the scaffolding becomes an exoskeleton, if you will. It's around the building while the building is being put up. Mm -hmm. But there comes a time that that scaffold is going to have to come down. Right. Even if it's a beautiful edifice, if it keeps the scaffold around it, it's ugly. Exactly. The scaffold has to come down. So it's knowing when the scaffolding needs to be there, when I need to support, and when I need to pull back. Mm. I believe that parents need to be identifying their children's gifts, both innate gifts and spiritual gifts, as sure. early as possible so that they know how to equip and to form those children and those pre-adolescents and those adolescents in line with those gifts. Right. If you can see, and, and uh, let me back up one step. When you see Paul's prayers in his epistles, he gives thanks to the church for what God has done. And then his prayer request for them, God, I pray that you do more of that. Yeah. So find yeah. the gifts that are in your children. Let them know that that gift is there and that you see it. Dads, for your daughters particularly, when they become teenagers, you need to be able to tell them, I'm so thankful that you're in my house. I'm so glad that I get to be your daddy. But when you say that, you've got to have three things in mind that you can answer their question of why. Because rhetoric doesn't answer anymore. You've got to be able to say, I'm so glad I'm your dad because Mm -hmm. I see your compassion for others. 
I see your inquisitiveness. I see your artistic skill. Whatever those giftings that are in that child yeah. is going to be tailored to that child. So when you say, I'm so glad you're in my house, you're not just speaking hyperbole, but you have identified in that child spiritual and intellectual and creative gifts, which are from above. Every good gift is from above. Yeah. Father of light, no variableness or shadow of turning. That gift is in them. And you have identified that gift. And now my job isn't just, do I have enough food on the table? My job is to, just like Peter tells husbands in First Peter chapter 3, I think it is, you need to dwell with your spouse, your wife, in knowledge, or your prayers aren't answered. Mm. You want answered prayers, dads, husbands? Know your wife and know your kids with knowledge. Know the gifting that they have and support those gifts. You want to be a leader in your home? Find out what those gifts are, cherish those gifts, and develop those gifts. And if you'll do that, your prayer life will go through the roof. Yeah. Your authority in prayer goes through the roof because now God can trust you with spiritual gifts because the gifts that are in your hand, you're superintending. You're being a steward of those gifts that are in your hand. Right. So that 7-year-old, that 12-year-old child that you have and your 35-year-old, 45-year-old wife, if you know what those gifts are and you're supporting those gifts, God can trust you with a dimension of prayer that he can't trust someone that's praying selfish prayers sure. or someone that's living for themselves. So identify those gifts, put things in place for those gifts to develop. And then when it comes time for that crisis to happen, and we could talk about James Marcia and crisis formation in adolescence at some other time, but as that crisis happens, they will transition from your faith to their faith to our faith. Right. And uh, in closing there, this is also why we need a faith community. Yeah. Uh, my children, I happen to have a doctorate. I happen to have been a seminary professor. But my kids needed to worship with people who were truck drivers and nurses and mechanics and janitors and lawyers. They needed to worship with people with other experiences to recognize there's lots of ways to serve this Jesus. And whether I'm a street sweeper or a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Mm -hmm. I want to do this to the glory of God. And I'm worshiping with people, some of who have the best week possible and some who have had the crisis of faith like you wouldn't believe. But we're going to worship together. And my children can learn not just from me as a dad, but they can learn from you as a dad. Right. When they do that now, this uh, tapestry of faith is much stronger than my little bitty fiber of my life. Sure. Wow. So... So good. What an incredible interview. Um, just let me try and sum up a little bit here. So for those of us who proclaim the Christian faith as dads, a big thing that we need to remember is that our identity is first as a disciple, not as a father. And that identity, that calling of, of identity, of who we are, bleeds into every area of life, whether it be Father, husband, employee, boss, whatever it is. Um, and I love what you said about paying attention to your kids to identify their giftings and then to build upon right. that. Um, I, I think that is so good because, you know, I, growing up in church all my life, I've always heard, which I don't agree with, but I've always heard people say, you know, those who God calls, he equips as if he just gives you some magical ability so that you can do something he's randomly called you to do, which is not the case. Biblically, it is always, God has always taken people who had a particular set of talents or giftings and used those particular set of giftings. That's how God do... equips. Exactly. It's, that's how he does. With the disciples, you're right. fishers, you're, you're fishermen, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Right. I mean, it, it goes on, even even Paul with his abilities, he's a tent maker, he's a right. theologian. He remained a tent maker right. for himself and for other people, and he was a theologian, not based off what his previous understanding was, but now with the revelation of Christ, he's right. still a theologian. So identifying those giftings and then nurturing those and helping them to flourish within their set of talents, uh, I think those are two takeaways that that we have to take. and. Again, I, I'm still meditating and, and chewing on the transitional moment as fathers where we 
in acknowledging those giftings and acknowledging how we've led them to believe the life that we live, mm-hmm. helping them to make that transition to where this is the life that they live. And then ultimately this becomes the life that we collectively live. Um, three things that I'm definitely going to take and meditate on. Jim, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're busy and I know there's a lot of other things that you could do, but I think this was an absolutely tremendous interview that's going to resonate with dads. Um, We'll do it again. You mentioned some other things we'll talk about, so I'll get you back on here. Is it okay if we end with a prayer? Absolutely. Oh, Lord, we are astounded by the life that you have given us. Our paths have sometimes been arduous and other times been exciting and delightful. But this day we confess that you have structured our lives and given us new identity in you. So right now I pray a blessing on every father listening and if mothers are listening as well. I pray a blessing on every person that's listening to this podcast. I pray, O Lord, that new insight of joy in who you have formed them to be. You have promised us through your word that we are not ashamed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So right now, I pray a blessing of delight and joy in following you. I pray a blessing, O Lord, that then radiates into relationships with spouses and children, places where we work, uh, neighborhoods where we live, places where we shop, elders whom we're caring for in uh, dementia. In all these places, we will be astounded by the way in which we can live out our call to serve you. And for this, O oh Lord, we pray, let our lives be glor- bring glory to your name. For at the end of the day, if we can lay our head on the pillow, Lord, I pray, we can lay our head on the pillow and say, today, I brought glory to your name through my life. That's what we want to do. So I pray that blessing on every person that's listening today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you again for your time. This has been a tremendous blessing. And for all of those watching, listening, thank you for being with us today. This is Fathering Our Future, the podcast for dads. I'm Anthony Vandegrift, and I hope you'll join me next time.